Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The song remains the same today, ladies and gentlemen, as the BBC prepares for a new onslaught on its practices. Yesterday, Lee Anderson MP declared the once great BBC to be, in his words, rotten. And it's hard to disagree following their cover-up and re-employment of the discredited Martin Bashir, despite knowing that he had forged documents and lied repeatedly in order to get his infamous interview with the Princess of Wales back in 1995. Julian Knight, the chairman of the Digital Culture Media and Sport Committee, wondered whether Bashir was rehired in order to keep him quiet. The BBC denies that. They said they themselves are now conducting not one, but two reviews into their governance and conduct. But I'm wondering, like you are, are they really the best people to investigate themselves? Even veteran broadcaster Jeremy Vine is now calling for a criminal investigation into his own organisation. And as we've been saying at Talk Radio, these are very difficult times for the BBC and they cannot surely remain as they are. We'll be talking to John Whittingdale MP, Minister for Media and Data this morning, to get his take on what should happen inside Broadcasting House. 0344 499 You might remember Claire Fox was with us uh, last week and she said she was a little bit uneasy about having government probing uh, journalism and having government sort of overseeing whatever journalists should be doing. I'm not so sure she's right about that. We'll find out what you think as well. 0344-499-1000. Coming up, we're also joined by former Special Advisor Peter Cardwell with a look ahead to Dominic Cummings' appearance before a select committee tomorrow. He's all set to throw Matt Hancock under a giant bus over the lockdowns. But will he also betray his former master, Boris Johnson? We'll also be chatting to the British Medical Association on why GPs don't want to see their patients in person. So don't forget to tell us your stories so we can pass them on to them. 0344 We're also talking burglary this morning. There are one million unsolved burglaries in the past five years that the police simply haven't bothered to look into. Little mixed star Leanne Pinnock has had a £40,000 engagement ring stolen, but you can bet your bottom dollar there'll be plenty of police coming around to her place. Can't you? Have you been a victim of burglary? Tell us what happened. 0344 499 Dr Simon Clark is here as well. I'll be asking him why the government is still dilly-dallying on lifting restrictions uh, because of the fear despite vaccinations, despite what the rest of the world is actually doing. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, uh, talk to John Whittingdale, Conservative MP for Malden, Minister of State for Media and Data. John, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. This is a hell of a mess the BBC seems to have created for themselves. Um, my big question, I suppose, has been since Friday, uh, when are we going to see these uh, executives being hauled before uh, a parliamentary committee in the same way that newspaper executives were uh, back in the day? Well, my colleague, Julian Knight, who you referred to, chairs the Culture, and Sports Selective Committee, which indeed I chaired for 10 years, yes. uh, and indeed hauled those newspaper executives you mentioned in front of. Julian's uh, holding a hearing very soon, so the, the committee will have an opportunity to question uh, the BBC. But I think, I think it's worth pointing out that you know, uh, this is an appalling episode, uh, which was covered up for years, but the current new management actually deserve credit for actually appointing Lord Dyson, for publishing his report, and for exposing the truth of what went on. Um, and obviously the people who were in charge at that time some of them are no longer with us, um, but you know, the Director General at the time, Lord Hall, as you know, has just announced his decision to step down from his current position at the National Gallery. Yes, he has. But in a way, uh, I was saying to somebody the other day, it's like me resigning from talk radio in order to spare the blushes of the BBC. You know, he's got nothing to do with the BBC anymore. The fact that he's resigned as, as, as from another job really doesn't matter, does it? I mean, the same way that the guy that stepped down from Ofcom um, maybe is a bit more connected, if you like. But, you know, I'm more interested in seeing the people at the BBC, uh, and I'm sure there are still many of them left in Broadcasting House, who are still there and who are still in, in positions of power and who still, I would say, um, have at least some um, guilt to bear about the kind of the attitudes of the people in there? Well, I mean, the, the, the actual interview and subsequent uh, events in the large part took place you know, over 20 years ago. So I suspect quite a lot uh, are, are not there, but maybe some. But uh, there are subsequent questions to be asked uh, uh, and addressed. Um, as you know, the BBC is also examining how it came to be that Martin Bashir, after it had already been revealed that he had... Uh, produced forged documents, nonetheless was re-employed by the BBC and was mm. on the payroll until only and that, very, and that very was only, And that was only five or six years ago, John. Indeed. Uh, and that is something which uh, I've talked to Tim David, Director General, about. He is conducting an urgent inquiry, which he's promised will report by, you know, within a week or so. Um, so I think we should have further answers to those questions very soon. Mm. Um, but, you know, rather than trying to pin blame on people who are no longer employed by the BBC now, I mean, I think the most important thing is that we make sure that the systems of governance in place would make it certain that this couldn't happen again. The BBC has been appallingly damaged by this episode. Trust has been shaken. Uh, and they do need to make absolutely sure that, that this can't possibly happen again. Yeah, but we also now know, thank, thanks to, to some newspaper investigations from yesterday, that uh, there's been other situations where the same thing may have happened with Martin Bashir and an interview that he did with Terry Venables. We also know that he may have done the same thing with Michael Jackson, albeit that that was with ITV, when he went over to briefly work for them. So, you know, there's clearly a culture um, problem here, don't you think, in terms of the way um, that, that these programmes are overseen? And the only reason Panorama published their documentary this week, or last week rather, uh, was because of public pressure, because at one point they said they weren't going to. Well, I mean, you're right that the Princess Diana interview was not a one-off. There are questions around other interviews conducted by Martin Bashir, you, you've named a couple, uh, and there have also been other dreadful failures, mm. not recently, but uh, within the BBC's current affairs programming. And we will remember you know, the, the decision to suppress the programme that was about 
uh, Jimmy Savile. Mm. There was a subsequent programme they did broadcast, which quite uh, uh, wrongly alleged that Lord McAlpine might be a paedophile. Uh, there was the decision to fly the helicopter over Cliff Richard's house at the time when he was being arrested, despite the fact he was found entirely innocent. Uh, you know, these are all failures. Uh, and so I think there is a case that there needs to be stronger oversight of the journalistic practices and the editorial decision-making in the BBC. That is something that the BBC's review is going to look at. Um, but we will also need to think about the governance structure when the government comes to assess the new arrangements, which we're about to start work on and we'll report next mm. year. And also, you've still got these rather, you might call them sort of small incidents, which which I think matter to the overall perception of the BBC. Because let's face it, John, uh, you know as, know as well as I do that the public perception and the public trust of the BBC has fallen away massively in recent years, particularly since Brexit and the referendum, uh, because of the way that they reported all of the things that were going on since then. We had at the weekend a woman uh, by the name of Tala Hawala, uh, who is apparently a Palestinian supporter, um, uh, who tweeted basically... Uh, uh, about Israel being like uh, Nazi Germany. Um, she has still not been suspended, never mind fired, as far as I'm aware, and works for BBC Digital. We've got Laura Kunzberg, who's a political editor, who's meant to be completely neutral, writing think pieces about whether Boris Johnson is a liar or not. And you think, well, hang on a minute, how does this tally with your supposed neutrality? And it's, it doesn't, doesn't seem to, to me. Well, there are a couple of things I'd say to that. In... in uh... In regard to the journalist you mentioned, who is uh, alleged to have tweeted the most appalling comments yes. about Israel and Hitler, um, I mean, as I said in my House of Commons yesterday, I, I fully understand that it has to be investigated to establish whether or not it's true that mm. she said that. But if it is shown that it is true, in my view, that person is not fit to be employed by the BBC. Right. Um, and that's something which I've already made clear. Mm. Um, I think the uh, the questions around you know the opinions of commentators... Um, I mean, Tim Davey acted quite swiftly to stop all BBC commentators' opinion, uh, people, journalists, from tweeting their views on social media. Um, he's made it absolutely plain that the standards which BBC journalists have to meet in terms of impartiality are higher than almost anywhere else. Um, so, I mean, I think he does understand that this is something that has gone wrong in the past and which has to be addressed. He does, uh, but, but, he, but he, then he said it didn't apply to Gary Lineker. Well, Gary Lineker is in a slightly different category in that he's not a political journalist. Um, well, yeah, but he's I mean, still employed other... by the BBC However, at a very uh, high rate of pay, right, is, paid by and, us. And he is, and, and the new uh, edict from the Director-General does say that all employees of the BBC have to be careful uh, mm. not to express controversially uh, controversial views on political subjects and that does apply to Gary Lineker and I believe that has been drawn to his attention mm. Well let's hope so, because uh, some of us mind you, I didn't see his tweets because he blocked me a long time ago for asking me if he was paying <laughs> enough tax, but that's not the story altogether. But how do you see this emerging at the end, John, as far as you know, Claire Fox said an interesting thing to me last week, um, uh, Baroness Fox said she's uncomfortable with the kind of um, uh, the setting up of some kind of governmental um, oversight of a journalistic organisation. And to some extent, I, I, I kind of understand how she feels about that. But I just wonder if the BBC has just become so big now that it's kind of unmanageable. Well, you don't want government interfering in the editorial decision-making uh, because that would compromise its independence. And that's the sort of thing you see in you know, authoritarian regimes mm. where the state broadcaster takes its orders from the government. That, that's something that we would never want to do. However you do need proper 
strong oversight with independent external regulation. That's what we tried to put in place at the time of the Charter Annual, mm. a much tougher management board, and then an appointed external regulator in the form of Ofcom. The extent to which that is working is something we will assess, but you know, I, I do believe that uh, it is very unlikely that the events uh, that have been exposed by Lord Dyson could have occurred under this uh, new governance regime, but that's something we will want to make mm. absolutely certain of. I mean, some people are suggesting they might need to put some journalistic uh, people onto the board of the BBC, which at the moment apparently there aren't any. Well, there are. There are one or two former uh, journalists on that. Um, indeed, we we only recently appointed Sir Robbie Gibb to the board, who worked for the BBC for a long time and then worked uh, in Downing Street. Mm. Um, Ian Hargreaves is also a former journalist, both at the BBC and outside. But there is a case, you know, that the oversight of editorial decision making is different to that of the main the function of the main board, which is all about you know setting the budget and approving the strategy. And there may be a case for a sort of sub-board with external people with journalistic background. That's something Michael Grade has been putting forward. You know, clearly it's something which the review the BBC are looking at will consider, uh, and we will also need to examine that when we look mm. at the midterm review. Would it not be worthwhile as well separating out the journalistic side of the BBC and everything else? Because, you know, we in the commercial sector get sick to death of all the free advertising they give each other uh, any time they feel like it. I mean, the one show which goes out every night on BBC One is literally an advert for all the other shows that they do. Oh, look, let's interview this person who's in a BBC drama, which is coming up tomorrow night. Oh, look, here's somebody from a BBC uh, podcast that we're putting out. You know, it's a non-stop sort of, you know, fun fest for BBC self-promotion. And I'm not sure that most licensed payers want to see that. Well, I mean, I think it's fair that the BBC informs viewers of sort of what's going to be on later in the week or whatever. Um, I do agree with yeah, you. Yeah, but why don't they promote my show? They don't have me on to say, why don't you listen to talk radio? Because Mike Graham's very good. They don't do that. Yeah, Mike, but on the other hand, you're not going to say who LBC have got on next, are you? No, so, I, wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't know. <laughs> to some extent, you can't blame them. But I do think you raise an important point <laughs> that, you know, the BBC is a very powerful organisation. It is funded by the licensed pair, and yet it is also com competing with commercial stations like indeed yours. Yeah. Um, and it does need not to exploit that uh, position it has. That's something which Ofcom is, is supposed to regulate. Um, I talk to the radio industry a lot because the BBC really is the big beast of the radio industry. Mm. And I know from a number of the commercial companies uh, that they are very unhappy about the way in which the BBC uh, behaves. That's something which Ofcom has the responsibility to look at. And we will continue to make sure that they don't abuse their very strong competitive position. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the podcast uh, situation, for example, I mean, they make podcast after podcast, thousands of podcasts coming out of the BBC every single week, you know, and it makes it very, very difficult for individual broadcasters, you know, individual um, personalities to get anywhere with a podcast, never mind making any money off them, because the BBC have kind of flooded the market. Well, the BBC will say to you that it's their job to use whatever means of, of, of distributing their content, which people want to listen well, to. Well, I don't think so it is, you see, because it's not a level playing field. Because if it was a level playing field, then we'd all have the same access to all of the same resources. But we know for a fact, John, uh, that we cannot do things in the commercial market in the same way the BBC can, because they don't have to worry about whether it's going to make money or not. They don't have to care whether or not it's it's cost effective. You know, they've got more people working in there uh, than you can shake a stick at. You know, and they've got 62 separate local 
local radio stations. You know, that's not a level playing field. Well, they do need to worry about if it's cost effective, because at the end of the day, they're funded by uh, the license fee payer. And I, I, just at this minute, we are involved in negotiating with them about the future level of the license fee. And we are absolutely determined to make sure that any waste or, or, or uh, extravagance is cut out uh, rather than expecting the license fee payer just to go on paying more and more. So that, that's very much an ongoing discussion. And I can, I can promise you we are pressing them very hard yes. on efficiency. And listen, John, the reason I wanted to get you on here is I know you've got a deep knowledge of, of, of the business that we're talking about, and I know that you understand it, and I know that you get um, you know, what our arguments are and also what the BBC's arguments are. But there is no doubt in, in my mind and most people's minds that they pay people more money than they would get uh, in the commercial sector. They pay contributors more. They've got a taxi bill of about 10 million quid. You know, it's nonsense to say that they have to worry about the money because in the end, it's a bottomless pit for most of them. They might have budgetary kind of, you know, guidelines, but basically, you know, money's no object to them. And I know that as somebody who's been paid to appear on there. Well, I mean, it is the case that, you know, they do receive three and a half billion pounds from the licence fee payer and indeed an income from uh, commercial activities. But, well, I mean, they, they've been put under quite a lot of pressure recently. They had a five year freeze of the licence fee. All right, it's now been rising the last couple of years with inflation. Uh, but they were also expected to pick up the cost of continuing to provide free licences for over 75s on pension credit. Mm. Um, so, well, no, they, they have had a squeeze and it is also true the costs in the television sector are going up rapidly but you know having said all that three and a half billion pounds of public money is a lot um and you know we do want to be absolutely satisfied it's being spent responsibly uh, the public accounts committee in the national audit office looked at it quite recently they said it's pretty efficient but you know i do believe there are more savings Tim Davies cuts the salaries. Gary Lineker is getting paid much less than he was, but he's still getting paid. He's still getting paid an awful lot for reading. He's still getting paid a vast amount compared to every normal person (laughs) in this country. So, no, I do think there's more that can be done. Well, exactly right. And I mean, a lot of people are fed up to the back teeth of the news division because they don't trust them. I think it's only 6% of the people who were polled recently actually trust them. And and let me tell you, I get lots of these kind of messages every single day. Steve in Lancashire says, Mike, please ask John Whittingdale why the BBC failed to mention any of the recent protests by tens of thousands at their HQ in London and their regional offices. These are the anti-lockdowners who were protesting outside Broadcasting House the other weekend. Didn't even make it onto the news. They were literally outside their front door. Yeah, well, I mean, impartiality covers a wide range of different aspects. And the decision as to what to report uh, and in what order is almost as important as, as the tone of the report when it goes out. Mm. You know, you can accuse a, a report of being biased, but it's equally, it can be, it, it's a valid accusation of bias to choose not to report yeah. something. So, I mean, I think those are issues which BBC needs to think about. We've made it absolutely clear to the BBC, that impartiality is the most important uh, quality which the BBC are expected to uphold. And there have been occasions when I think they've fallen short. And that is, again, something which the BBC accept and have uh, assured us that they will address. Well, who can forget the night in Parliament Square um, on uh, the night we left the European Union last year when they had a reporter walking around interviewing uh, all the people she could find that were drunk uh, and telling everyone what a white crowd it was. And you're kind of going, I know people that were there. Yeah, I was there. You know, it wasn't a particularly I white was there. crowd. I'm, I'm not you know, I, I'm it's sure ridiculous. you and I went drunk, but, uh, but we, we, I certainly was we not. were certainly celebrating. Absolute rubbish. Yeah, never, never, dreadful thing to say. But what about this, right? Let's talk about News UK themselves, right? Um, this company, one of the biggest media organisations in the entire world, 
put out a statement a couple of weeks ago saying we will no longer be uh, starting up a linear television channel, which we were thinking of doing, because it's not commercially viable. And there's one reason why it's not commercially viable, and that reason is the BBC. So they're actually, as far as I'm concerned, operating uh, a restraint of trade. Well, we do. I mean, anybody can start up a TV channel online. And indeed, you know, there are others who are about to do so, as you'll know. Um, well, there the, are also the, others who are about to start up a linear channel, too. Uh, oh, indeed, on, on Freeview. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is a question of how, how you find it, because, of course, one of the advantages which BBC has is that it's number one on the on the list. As, and then, then you have what we call the public service broadcasters mm. who are all at the top of that list. Um, but, you know, I mean, there is more choice available um, in terms of, of TV content, obviously, than ever before, and actually more news providers opening up. But the BBC, you know, I mean, the BBC is still widely admired, perhaps, you know, particularly overseas, actually. Um, and the BBC, trust in the BBC's journalism is absolutely essential. Well, I, I, I think, I, you know what, I, I, actually I agree think... with you. It has taken a, a knock. Yeah. Um, no, listen, I think the world service that the BBC provides is actually one of the best things um, that, that Britain does. But for some reason, that's like what the old BBC used to be like. The new sort of BBC domestically is nothing like that. Well, I, I think there is a problem which goes beyond simple failure of journalism, which we've seen uh, exposed by Lord Dyson, but into the whole culture. And one of the things we've made clear is that the BBC needs to be much less insular. At the moment, it's comprised in the main of people with similar background, with similar views, coming from similar parts of the country, and they all talk to each other, and they don't really connect with large parts of Britain. Mm. And that is something which we have stressed that the Director General, I think, recognises. Uh, and there does need to be much more diversity in the BBC, not just, you know, diversity of race and sex, but diversity of geography. So you have more people from different parts of the UK and diversity of thought, because one of the things which I think the BBC is guilty of is that almost everybody has the same view of the world and finds it mm. very difficult to understand how anybody can have a yes. different view. Well, that, and, and, that, and that is, is, and that is, is a perfect example. Well, exactly right. And I mean, only the BBC could relocate half of its operation up to Manchester. But rather than hiring local people from that area, uh, they end up bringing everybody up from London. So it's literally like a little island of Islington in the middle of Salford Keys, you know, which <laughs> which which is about as close to Manchester as I am. No, I, I, I absolutely agree that they need to do much more. And I, I do believe that Tim Davey has said that that is his intention uh, and we will hold them to it. And mm. We will watch to see him, whether or not he delivers. Well, very good. I'm glad to hear it. And I shall have you back on, John, uh, once we've pared them down a little bit and uh, they've become slightly less uh, arrogant, as I think they, they definitely need to be taken down a peg or two. John Whittingdale, thank you very much indeed. MP for Malden, Minister of State for Media and Data. Lots of you tweeting uh, today about what John's been saying. Some of you think he's not being hard enough on the BBC. Well, we'll see uh, what happens when they get hauled before some committees, because I think there'll be an awful lot of us who will be very encouraged to see that. Uh, and I think the BBC have not yet gone far enough uh, in ridding themselves of some of the people involved in this Martin Bashir caper, because a caper is exactly what it was. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, let's talk to Peter Cardwell, former special advisor, talk radio commentator. He'll be with us tomorrow for Prime Minister's Questions. But before all of that happens tomorrow at 9.30, Dominic Cummings will be making his appearance before a parliamentary committee to talk about uh, COVID, to talk about the lockdowns, to talk about government policy back in the days uh, of March and April and May of last year. Uh, it threatens to be quite an explosive encounter, I suspect. Let us uh, find out from Peter what he's expecting. Peter, very good morning to you. 
Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. Looking forward to PMQs tomorrow. Um, but before that, a rather delicious kind of encounter with uh, Dominic Cummings, where uh, the man who has, in the very least, become slightly obsessed with taking down the government, uh, will have an opportunity to uh, to give his views. Absolutely. It's almost impossible to believe that it's exactly a year today since that extraordinary press conference he gave in the garden of really? Downing Street when he was talking about going to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight. Right. Now, a year later, he's taking down the government from not within, but from outside. Mm. And he's going to be at this joint committee of the health and science commit, uh, committees uh, tomorrow. And he's going to be giving chapter and verse on what happened inside Downing Street when the decisions were made around handling COVID. And his central argument, which has been given in a lot of tweets that he's put out, about 55 of them actually, very detailed, some with links, some with different documents that he's put in the public domain or or a, a preview of documents that he may put in the public domain, is essentially that the government was going for a policy of herd immunity, which he believes would have killed many people. Then they decided to do a, a complete U-turn on that. But his central uh, idea, I suppose, is that it was we were we were heading for disaster and he helped rescue us from that so his his central idea is essentially if only everybody had listened to me everything mm. would have been so much better yes which is interesting isn't it because of course he was very much you would have thought part and parcel of that decision making process and he doesn't seem to me to be somebody who uh, you disagree with very often you know he looks like a sort of guy i mean certainly there were there was there were times and the journalists may have got this wrong but when they, it was being written he was more or less running the country yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I worked with him and there's no absolutely no uh, ambiguity there. It's absolutely clear that he was in control. Boris Johnson was sort of the, the chairman and Dominic Cummings was sort of the chief executive. Mm. So uh, it's interesting for him to say that not just that there was a lack of decision making, but also there was sort of institutional resistance. He's very harsh on the civil service, especially the Department of, the Hel- oh, Department of Health, saying that uh, they were very resistant to what was the right thing to do. So there's a lot of complicated detail to come out. But the question, of course, is whether people will believe him. There was a poll for YouGov, very respected pollsters, that said that only 14% of people actually believe Dominic Cummings. And the main reason people will know who he is is because he's the person who broke lockdown to drive to Barnard Castle. And a lot of people still feel very aggrieved about that as well. Mm, absolutely. I certainly don't think that he was to blame for, in any way, other people behaving differently because they watched what he did. But certainly, um, he seems to have it in for Matt Hancock. I can, we can expect him to be certainly throwing him under the bus. But will he still kind of um, have a, a scintilla, if you like, of respect for Boris Johnson? And will he kind of try and protect Boris? Or, or do you think he's going to get it as well? I think Boris is going to get it as well. I don't think it'll be as dangerous for Boris as some people think it will. Mm. I think he'll round on the institutional side, the Department of Health, Matt Hancock as well. I think he's going to be pretty nervous about tomorrow. There are also various senior officials, people like Jenny Harris, who used to be the uh, Deputy Chief Medical Officer. She now runs the body that deals with health security in this country. And I think they're going to be quaking in their boots in terms of what's going to come out. Mm. There's a lot of questions as well about what he can actually put in the public domain. Some of it is covered by the Official Secrets Act. But there's something, it's kind of a complicated thing, but there's something called parliamentary privilege, which Mm. is 
legal thing, which you'll know about, uh, Mike, of course, as a journalist, um, where the uh, where the committee can decide to put certain things in the public domain in the public interest, and yes. that's kind of legally immune. So there, there's a lot that can come out. I think Boris Johnson will be pretty nervous. And actually, uh, this time last year, just going back exactly a year ago again, there were plenty of people saying to Dominic Cummings before he gave his press conference in the garden at number 10, don't say that, don't say this. Mm. There's nobody doing that now. There's no, no filter now. He no. can say whatever he likes, and he's nothing to lose. But that's the other interesting thing, I think, for a lot of people, when they see what Dominic Cummings has access to, that when he left Downing Street, you would imagine, I mean, unless, I mean, in every job I've ever left, you know, you're not really allowed to take any of the secrets from the company that you left, uh, and you normally have to sign some kind of agreement, uh, particularly if, you, if you're being sort of forced out, uh, to not speak about it. So I think a lot of people are slightly puzzled as to how Cummings can do all of this and how he's kept all of this documentation. Yeah, definitely. But also, I suppose the government, you know, do you want to get into a legal dispute with Dominic Cummings about him saying I'm putting in the public domain things the public should know? Yes. And also those kind of but agreements. I'm, but, I'm, but I'm also wondering about, I mean, in any commercial situation, normally you would be asked if you had access to sensitive files, you'd be asked to hand them over before you left, wouldn't you? Yeah, no, you're, you're de definitely not allowed to, you're not supposed to put a lot of those, uh, have a lot of those documents, you're supposed to give them back, that's mm. certainly the case when I stopped being a special advisor, but Dominic Cummings has never been someone who's particularly followed the rules, we remember David Cameron of course called mm. him a career psychopath, uh, <laughs> so he's a, he's a controversial character, he plays by his own rules. Right, and knowing him as you do Peter, having worked there, I mean, what's motivating him to do this do you think, is it is it pure and simple revenge, is he annoyed uh, that he was forced out, does he think that somehow it was down to Carrie and her sort of cabal um, or I mean it's, it's difficult to gauge what why he's doing this I think it's all of that I think it's revenge I think it's also a really clear idea that he was right uh, I mean to operate at that level to be someone who's one of the most powerful people in the country mm. essentially the chief advisor to the the prime minister you've got to have an incredible level of self-confidence and when you have people coming out saying well actually what you said was wrong and you know he's been attacked from all mm. sides in the media and by politicians very few people actually standing up for him when he was thrown under a bus by mm. Boris so I think he will definitely want to have his day. He's put out these tweets at the weekend. He knows we'll be talking about this in the media for the last couple of days. And this is going to be a major piece of political theatre tomorrow morning at 9.30. And I'm looking forward to discussing it with you tomorrow yes, when it's all over. Very much so. We shall see you then. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Peter Cardwell, their former special advisor, uh, worked with Dominic Cummings in Downing Street. Uh, talk radio commentator. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Just before we talk to Dr. Vultry, uh, how about this for a text, which has come in uh, without a name on it, unfortunately. Uh, says that uh, From Graham, sorry. I've just seen the Top Gear special on the iPlayer and counted 62 staff members in the credits. This is a joke. Surely this can be slimmed down. Well, that's my point. You know, I'm perfectly happy for the BBC to do what they do, but they can't be charging so much and they can't be employing so many people to do the jobs that nobody else in any commercial organisation could possibly sustain. It's that simple. 0344 499 Let's talk to Dr Richard Vautry, uh, who's BMA GP Committee Chair. Dr Richard, very good morning. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. We've been talking to um, a lot of people on this story for the last few weeks. Um, I'm delighted that we've been able to get you on as well because you can give us probably a very different perspective. A lot of people have told me, you know, because I don't want to give the wrong impression, that loads of GP surgeries are working pretty much normally uh, and they're very happy with them. But on the other hand, there seems to be others uh, who are not working normally and some people are finding that a little bit irksome, not to to say the least. A lot of people saying they've been asked to take pictures of themselves and send them in. Uh, They've been using this thing called um, um, uh, e-serve or whatever it is that they have to fill out the form in before they can even possibly attempt to get uh, um, an appointment with the doctor. Um, What's your take on on what the NHS is recommending to the doctors? Well, GP practices have been working flat out throughout the pandemic. Uh, We've always been open for our patients. We will always see patients when it's clinically necessary to do so in our surgeries. But we have to do that in a safe way. The pandemic hasn't ended yet. Uh, We still have to operate social distancing arrangements. Uh, We have to ensure that um, only a limited number of people are in our waiting areas at any one time, which are often not particularly well ventilated. Uh, So we need to ensure it's safe for every patient who's there. Uh, So that does mean that we need to uh, speak to patients or contact them before they attend, just to make sure that they haven't got COVID-related symptoms, they're not going to infect anybody else uh, when they're in our surgery space. Um, and that we take the necessary measures to protect them. So just this morning, I've seen large numbers of my patients in the surgery, but I've also spoken to many more on the telephone as well, just trying to provide the best care we can. Yeah, and some people are quite happy with being uh, consulted on the telephone. Some people are more than happy not to have to see a doctor. But there are lots of people that I've spoken to personally who have rung this show and said that they've been trying to get an appointment to see a doctor and they just haven't been able to do that. Um, because, I mean, how can you tell, for example, whether somebody is is uh, is free of covid just by talking to them? Uh, you, can't be, you can't be absolutely sure. Um, and I think it's not just about whether they're free of COVID. You know, it's whether uh, it's an appropriate thing for them to you know, come into a space like a health centre uh, for a further examination or a further consultation. So uh, we do do that very carefully uh, when either using telephone or online consultation methods uh, to do that assessment because we want to ensure that we care for our patients appropriately. We don't want to give them the wrong treatment. And we often do need to do a physical examination mm. Uh, for them to be able to do that. But what we need to be very careful of um, is people just walking into our practices uh, alongside other people who have been booked in and are waiting appropriately in the waiting area, because that then if that becomes overcrowded, uh, as it used to do two years ago, very, very often, uh, then we put our patients at risk. And I think we are, need to ensure that uh, our patients are treated in a very safe environment. But in terms of the social distancing rules, I mean, are they imposed by individual doctor surgeries or are they imposed by the NHS? Uh, no, there is national guidance around social distancing, which mirrors um, all of the arrangements. But we need to remember that it's different coming into a GP practice 
compared with going into a pub or a restaurant. Most people who go to a pub and a restaurant are generally well when they go. Uh, many people who come to a GP practice or a hospital appointment are unwell. Uh, so they may have symptoms that have yet to be diagnosed. Uh, so in you know two years ago, you, you would sit in a waiting room full of people, many people coughing, some people with a high temperature. There is a risk now that if that was the case now, uh, some people who came well uh, left with an infection yes. that they had picked but up that was the always, practice. And we really need to that, avoid that. But that was always the case, wasn't it? I mean, I used to go to the doctors a lot more when my children were younger because I would take my kids to the doctors. Um, and you'd always sit in a room feeling slightly uneasy because of the fact that people were coughing and spluttering all over the place. And I always felt like I was going to walk out with something I hadn't walked in with. But, you know, obviously COVID is, is a different uh, situation, but it's not that different. Uh, well, I mean, COVID is a very serious illness, um, and obviously, you know, people are still dying from that, um, although, albeit in smaller numbers. But nevertheless, but people uh, have been vaccinated right. um, against so it was, now as well, haven't they? Uh, but I was saying, you're, you're right. Two years ago, so, you know, you would sit in a, in a maybe an unsafe environment. So we need to learn uh, from that and not go back to those days where we put our patients at risk from whatever uh, infection they might be exposed to. Uh, so I think we do need uh, to improve the quality of our premises, have more ventilation within our premises. So we do need the government to support us with that. We've been calling for improvements for many, many years. We also need to recognise it isn't just uh, the, the, the pandemic situation that we're now dealing with in practice. We've got large numbers of people you know, who have now contacted the practice. We're seeing and contact, being contacted by more patients uh, than, than ever before, so equivalent to two years ago. Um, and we just haven't got the staff to be able to respond. And we understand why it's so frustrating for our patients uh, when they ring through to the practice and have to wait some time to actually get through. And that's simply because there are far too many people uh, ringing for the staff that we have. And we need to expand our practice staff to be able to cope with this rising demand. But that is one of the problems, isn't it? Because if you have more and more people calling in, um, I mean, I've had uh, people telling me that some of the doctor's surgeries where they are have put a block on uh, certain parts of the day where you can only ring between particular hours and quite often they don't get to speak to a human being at all and they leave a message and somebody might ring them back but it might take two or three days. Yeah, practices are really working as, as fast as they possibly can to process the large numbers of calls. We've had a real spike in, um, in demand for appointments um, in the last few weeks. Uh, that's demonstrated by national figures um, showing uh, over three million more appointment requests um, you know, compared with uh, the previous month. Uh, so that's a huge volume that practices are having to deal with. Mm. That's in part because many patients are frustrated that they haven't got their hospital appointments or they're ringing their GP about that. Uh, there's many patients who've been waiting for a few months, uh, not wanting to come to the uh, healthcare facility uh, and now deciding that it's safe for them to do so. Mm. Uh, we've got many patients who are, are genuinely unwell with viral infections they've not been exposed to during the last year. Uh, so we've seen a huge rise in demand and we're doing our best to try and manage that. But we understand our patients' frustration. Yeah, I mean, I've got one here from um, from SJ, Stephen, who says, my doctor is phone call only unless it's very extreme. Uh, we can't see our doctor and my wife needs to. And he says, my biannual appointment at Northampton General Hospital has also been cancelled. So, I mean, I think there's definitely a problem inside the health service, isn't there? Because the NHS for a long time talks about really only uh, dealing with COVID in hospitals. Hospitals now are largely, um, you know, not terribly busy, it seems to me, from what people tell me, um, because COVID is, has been reduced dramatically, which is, which is great. Um, but it seems to me that the, that the GPs are slightly lagging behind the curve, if you like, because we have now got large parts of the country which are more or less COVID-free uh, and have been for a while. Uh, yeah, but as I say, it's not just about COVID. It is about that wider NHS backlog um, and a huge rise in demand uh, for GP practice uh, appointments and services. 
We're seeing as many patients as we possibly can, seeing as many patients as we are, can safely do so face to face. We do that day in, day out, seeing millions of people uh, on a regular basis. Um, but I think it is a real challenge. We have insufficient GPs, insufficient practice nurses. Uh, you know, we haven't invested over the last decade uh, in our health services in the way that we ought to have done. Um, and this is now showing up uh, in the pressures that practices are under. But we will always do our best to meet the needs of our patients. I mean, what's the, what's the problem with recruitment as well? Because a couple of doctors have mentioned this to me in the past, that there, there aren't enough doctors effectively, there aren't enough GPs. Why, why is there not enough GPs? I think we haven't valued as a nation, sort of, and the government haven't valued um, general practice in the way that it ought to have done and promoted it as, a, as the great career that it is. Um, we are now seeing younger doctors choosing general practice um, as a career in greater numbers. The problem is, is the workload pressures and the stress yeah, I'm meaning that older doctors um, are, uh, are finding it's um, necessary to leave the service early um, or reduce their hours commitment just to actually protect their own mental health and physical well-being. Uh, so there's huge pressures on all the staff, not just doctors, but nurses, practice managers, uh, reception staff. The whole team is under huge pressure. But we do need to promote general practice far more uh, to enable younger doctors and older ones to stay in the profession uh, so that we can uh, expand the numbers that we have available. And what about the staffing levels as well? Because you were saying that there's there's difficulties in getting people in to, to answer the phones and to organise uh, meetings and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, surely there's enough people that you could recruit to do that. Uh, yeah, we, we're always trying to, to recruit more staff. Obviously, we need the resources to be able to do that. But we also need the space. As I mentioned earlier, one of the challenges is many practices are still too small. Sort of, you know, they're older buildings, uh, not designed for the large teams that we now have. Uh, so we've got growing numbers of people joining us, whether that be pharmacists and paramedics, uh, physios or others wanting to work in general practice, but we simply don't have the space uh, to put them. So we do need to invest in that boring thing, which is practice premises, uh, to actually expand the building and the facilities mm. uh, so that we have more space to employ and, and seat people to see more patients. And who would normally pay for that then? Is that something you would need government money for? Yes, we do need government money for that. We've been calling that repeatedly over the years. Uh, we saw a small amount um, a few years ago, but we haven't seen the commitment in the spending review um, in the last year uh, that we were calling for. Uh, so this is a serious issue. We've heard from government about 40 new hospitals. What we need is hundreds of new GP surgeries yes. uh, because it's, that's where the vast majority of patients are seen. And increasingly, uh, in activity that was done in the hospital is now being, being done in the community, in GP practices. Uh, but we need modern facilities to be able to do that. Well, I, I mean, I was wondering, I mean, we're going to do a story later on in this show about uh, rural areas getting uh, 400,000 new homes uh, around the country. But what you never hear about is what they're going to do to put the kids in a new school or whether there's going to be a new GP surgery attached to all of that. Do you think they don't really think enough about these kinds of things? No, they don't. And I think that's, again, been one of our concerns for a number of years is we've seen expansion uh, of the population. We've seen expansion uh, of, of home development, but we haven't seen the equivalent expansion uh, in GP surgeries or, or GP practice staff. Uh, and we do need new developments to be accompanied by uh, you know, a, a development and mm. support for the expansion of GP services. Yeah. And you wrote a piece recently, uh, Richard, in which you said the letter from NHS England, which is the one that refers to seeing more and more patients face to face, is sadly completely tone deaf. What did you mean by that? Well, it didn't understand or reflect the massive workload pressures that practices were under. Uh, and it suggested that somehow it was practices who were to blame for following social distancing guidelines and infection protection control arrangements. Um, we are seeing large numbers of patients um, in our surgeries. Even that letter confirmed that we're seeing 50% uh, 
of our patients in face-to-face appointments in our surgeries. Uh, we'd like to do more, but we're constrained from that to, in, uh, as I've just outlined, so, you know, because of the social distancing arrangements. Uh, but nevertheless, what we need to see from government and from NHS England is a much greater understanding of the pressures that practices are under, but also help in explaining to patients uh, why it is that we still have to work in the way that we do, but that we are trying our best to meet the needs of our patients. So please don't criticise us, please support us. And well, we will criticise you if you're not doing your job properly, which a lot of people are currently doing. Patients are suffering, says Alison, because their doctors won't see them. It costs the NHS a fortune to keep passing the patients about like a hot potato instead of the doctors doing their jobs. And people are quite rightly anxious and angry about it because they want to be able, you know, they see it as their right to be able to see a doctor if they wish to. Well, we, we understand patients' frustration and indeed their anger, and, and we share a lot of that. And that's why the, the letter from NHS England really didn't um, you know, hit the marks sort of, you know, and, and cause so much frustration uh, amongst practices because what it didn't do um, is really um, explain sort of, you know, what the current situation is, but also say very clearly about how we can move forward in a positive way mm. so that we can see more patients, we can respond to a greater need that's clearly evident in our communities. Uh, from the NHS backlogging community and primary care and in hospitals too. Uh, this is a massive issue. This isn't going to go away fast, uh, but what we need to avoid um, is uh, suggesting to patients uh, that they can simply walk in uh, to a building that's already crowded uh, and put yeah, others I don't at think risk. That's, I don't uh, think so we need to do anything to protect people. I, I don't think they're yeah. expecting that, Richard. I think what they're expecting is to be able to phone up and say, I'd like to come and see uh, Dr. Vultry uh, at the earliest opportunity that I can do so. Uh, I don't think they are expecting people to just walk in off the street, and I think they get that. Well, the, the NHS England letter did suggest that, and I think that's one of the problems, um, is this suggested that patients can simply walk in and demand an appointment uh, when we do need to actually ensure that everybody is safe. Uh, we want to ensure our patients get the right appointment, uh, whether that be face-to-face um, or uh, by telephone or through another method, uh, but we need to do it safely. But yeah. we are working extremely hard to be able to do that. Yes, but surely you ought to have a roadmap, uh, since that would be, appear to be the sort of phraseology of the of the of the current age as to when you can do it. Because surely, if, me, yes. if, if more and more people are vaccinated, social distancing becomes less of a thing. And it may well be that on June the twenty first, anyway, social distancing is done away with altogether. In which case, you can go back to where you were, right? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. We have written to uh, uh, the Secretary of State, um, Matt Hancock, about exactly that. Uh, we, we need an urgent meeting with the Secretary of State uh, to talk through what is the plan for general practice, how we can sort of, you know, support our patients and our staff. Um, and we do need uh, some very clear uh, and uh, guidance around uh, when it's appropriate and safe uh, to uh, change from the current social distancing arrangements and mm. infection control arrangements and practices. Uh, but we need... Um, very clear evidence from the CMO and others uh, to be able to do so. Yes, but if, if, if Boris Johnson gets up on, on June the 20th and says, right, as of tomorrow, social distancing is no longer required, you're not going to say, well, we're, we're still going to do it, right? Uh, well, we need to see the evidence linked to that. Uh, we're, the Prime Minister was very clear he should be following data um, you know, to be able to support that. We're still seeing rises in cases in, in certain parts of the country. But nevertheless, we do need uh, a very clear exposition uh, from uh, Public Health England, from the CMO and others uh, who are experts in the field uh, to demonstrate that it is safe to work in a particular way. Uh, and then it is for practices uh, to ensure that they do provide the best possible service mm. to their patients based on that guidance. But you're dealing with sick people, Richard. So, I mean, presumably there's any number of people with infectious diseases going into uh, hospitals, going into GP surgeries at any given time. You know, you're not going to be able to make that completely safe for everybody because if you go to a doctor's surgery, you might pick up uh, some bugs or other. 
uh, you, you quite possibly sort of, and that's why we need to learn from the past and not have those crowded, unventilated waiting rooms uh, crammed full of people uh, waiting for an appointment. Uh, as you yeah, said, but it right wasn't like people were dropping, are... dropping down dead outside, were they? No, no, I don't think that's happening. But many of our patients actually prefer to have that telephone appointment. It's much more convenient for them. They don't have to take time off work to be able to get to the well, they GP do surgery. But equally, they, they actually do they do because they don't. Who are, well, sometimes they do because yeah. they don't always get a window of uh, of when the call's coming uh, more than you know a, a day say before. And sometimes they have to wait a couple of hours for the call to come. So they're telling me that they do have to take time off work because they can't always also talk on the phone securely in the house, or they can't always talk securely in an office space because they don't want anyone overhearing them yeah no i think that's that's understandable and we will do our best to try and provide you know the best type of consultation for each individual patient uh, but we simply have too many patients ringing uh, for too few practitioners to be able to respond in the timely way that we would all want that to be done by right. uh, so we're doing our best to try and sort of provide that responsive service uh, we'll keep trying to sort of look at new ways of doing that but we'll always see our patients face-to-face when it's necessary to do so. Well, let's hope that's the case. Dr Richard Vautry, thank you very much indeed. BMA GP Committee Chair there, uh, giving the doctor's side of things, uh, saying that it's not always easy uh, to be a doctor because there's too many uh, patients and not enough doctors. So stop being ill. It's as simple as that. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, story on the front page of the Daily Telegraph this morning saying vaccination won't mean an end to self-isolating, which seems to me to be rather counterintuitive. Let's talk to Simon Clark, Associate Professor in Cellular Microbiology at Reading University. Simon, very good morning to you. Well, good afternoon. Good morning, say. Mike. Well, good afternoon. Yeah, yes, sorry. Indeed. Time flies. You know, I was just thinking somebody <laughs> said to me it was a, a year ago, basically, to the day that um, Dominic Cummings was out uh, in the garden at Downing Street giving his version of why he went to Barnard Castle. And it just made me think how great the weather was last year because it was a lovely sunny day, I seem to remember. And he was wearing uh, shirt sleeves. You know, today, if you sat outside, you'd need a sou'wester on. April and May last year were lovely. This year, they're absolutely miserable. It really is miserable. But what are you making of this vaccination story? Because fully vaccinated people will still be told to self-isolate for 10 days if they come into contact with someone infected with COVID after June the 21st, which seems a bit mad to me because I I thought that we were supposed to be trying to move away from all of this stuff. Yeah, we were. And uh, we've been told that the vaccines prevent us picking up the virus asymptomatically and transmitting it on, or there's a good protection for it. However, there is a a paper from the Oxford Vaccine Group that says that their vaccine is not so good at that. Mm. Uh, And I've never been quite sure of how the the Department for Health and Social Care have balanced those two things. There's plenty of journalists have told me that their their press people are absolutely insistent that that's the case. But like I say, a published peer-reviewed piece of uh, science from that group, which I have no reason to disbelieve, uh, says it's not so good. And that's that's been out for some time. It may be, of course, that uh, they, they're spooked a bit by the Indian variant and are, are not so confident that any protection that you may get from any of these vaccines is quite so good. So perhaps they're just erring on the side of caution. Yeah. Well, I think there's an awful lot of this erring on the side of caution going on. Um, yeah, and, and quite frankly, I can get a bit fed up with it, really, because, I mean, we keep hearing different things about this Indian variant. First, we were told it we might do. be more transmissible. Then we were told it actually might not be more transmissible. Now we're told it might be less transmissible uh, than other variants. And I mean, you kind of go, well, they can't all be right, can they? No, they can't all be right. My suspicion is that it's slightly more transmissible than for the Kent variant. Yeah. But not so long ago, we were, we were having 50% more variable, which is a lot, um, uh, sort of waved as a flag. And, and I think that's 
over the top. But and of course, you can argue again that the, the politicians have decided they have to plan for the worst case scenario. Yeah. But uh, why not tell people that it's the worst case scenario instead of uh, 50 percent? Well, that's it. And I mean, we seem to be also in, in danger of confusing lots of people again, because we have, I'm afraid, become a society that apparently needs to be told how to do everything and when to do everything and who to do it with. Um, and supposedly people are confused today because they've been issued with sort of different guidelines for what they should do yeah. while travelling around the country. And it seems to me that we've, we've kind of fallen into this trap, haven't we? Uh, it does seem very odd. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure where these different newspapers, different sections of the media get their information mm. from, but they should be one source and it should be consistent. Uh, but that's not what we're getting. No. Well, what they're getting is briefings from people. That's how it works, basically. I mean, you know, I say that That's as somebody true. as I say that as somebody who used to get them. You know, um, yeah, where where you you know you get a call from somebody. It could be a minister. Uh, it could be a minister's aide. It could be you know an MP uh, who's spoken to a minister. But basically, they're trying to get a message out without putting yeah. it out officially. And that's kind of what's going on. And it, it seems to me um, that people should surely at this point in, in, the, in the situation be kind of just using their own common sense, which I think broadly is what Boris Johnson wants people to do. But he can't say it because apparently if you tell people to use common sense, they go completely mad. <laughs> I mean, that's the, par- yeah. that's the paradox, isn't it? I know. Personally, I think there should be one source of information and then people have got to work around that. And there is an element of common sense in, in that. Yes. But um, if you if you uh, go telling people, do what you like, um, which is how some people will hear it, then, yeah. uh, then it, it becomes like herding cats. Yes. But, I mean, it is kind of different out there, isn't it? I mean, there is now a very different feel, certainly, to London. I don't know what it's is. like where you are. Um, you know, people are... I mean, I was looking at a picture from Kiowa Island, funnily enough, at the weekend, where the PGA golf tournament was being held in, uh, mm-hmm. in South Carolina. And it looks just like any normal golf event where there's thousands of people crowding around a green watching Phil Mickelson uh, trying to win uh, the great age that he's at. Um, and it seems to me that if they're doing it there, why are we not doing it here? Uh, well, we'll find out in due course whether it comes back to bite them. But th- these are political decisions. It's for politicians to look at the evidence, to look at where we are in this country and come up with their mm. advice. That's their responsibility. It's not their privilege. Right. It's their responsibility. Yes, but it hasn't come back to bite them in Texas. It hasn't come back to bite them in Florida. I mean, the Texas governor last week issued uh, a series of, uh, of statements which involved the statistics on COVID. And he said they had no COVID deaths for the first time since March of last year. And they've been open properly, uh, including loads of people going to ball games and crowding into stadiums together for quite some uh, some weeks now. Yeah, and when we can do that, we should do that. But these parts of the world, different parts of the world, do not move in exact synchrony. And I, you know, if I went through the data, I can point to parts, of, particularly last summer, July and August, mm. where there were significant cases, particularly in the warmer parts of the United sure. States, uh, Texas, Florida, California, and uh, relatively few here. Yes. No, that's very true. But, I mean, my take on all of that is that in various different parts of the world and at different times, we've all kind of really been in the same boat. If you were to take it all overall as a kind of a a global figure, there's not been much difference really in the time in terms of the, uh, the, 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 the portion of people who were affected and the portions of people who died. No, well, broadly speaking, that's yeah. that's right, particularly in the developed world. Mm. Um, but they they come at different times of year, it seems. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem to be any um, uh, sort of... I mean, people talk about seasonal fluctuations and talk about how the spring is a time when you, you would expect to see uh, less virus than in the autumn. But actually, you know, when it came last year, it was spring. 
Um, we don't have yeah. it this spring, um, partly not, not, but not because of the weather, more to do with the fact that it's, it's, it appears to have disappeared for the moment. Yeah, I mean, last spring, perhaps just over a year ago, I was being told a lot, well, the, the summer will get rid of it for us. It right. will just deal with it. Mm. Of course, that wasn't true, isn't true. Um, and you go to places like, uh, and I pointed it out at the time, Brazil and Singapore, yeah. where it's never cold. Um, they, they've had uh, they've had serious mm. uh, numbers of cases. So, um, yes. uh, but, yeah, but yeah, we, we're, still, but we're still told by the doom and gloom merchants that, you know, oh, of course it will come back in the, in, the, in the autumn and probably next winter, almost certainly, you know. Um, and they still, so they still use seasonality when they want to, even though yes. there doesn't appear to be any reason to. Yeah, it's, it's a cycle. It's not really seasonality. Um, I, do, I, I do think it will come back, but... We will, we will have been vaccinated extensively yeah. by then. So it will meet that wall. So, yes, there will be a, a, uh, an increase in the number of infections. That's what these things seem to do. Yeah. But I don't think, and I hope I'm right, obviously, that it will be an insurmountable pressure for the NHS, which is why we had the lockdown. Well, that's what we're told. But then, then when the lockdown is, is not lifted, even though there is no pressure on the NHS, we get told it was for something else. And that is also a problem. You know, because, yes, that is true. You know, because we had, of course, the problem in January when a lot of people were dying. But as we moved into February, that ceased to be the case. And we were past the point where I think they started removing the, the status from number five down to number four. Uh, in the NHS, then it went down to number three, and yet we were still locked down. And I think that's the problem, you know, that we're going to have Dominic Cummings tomorrow uh, giving evidence to a parliamentary committee in which we think he's going to say that he doesn't believe the first lockdown was necessary, certainly not the second, and certainly not the third. Um, He may well say that, we'll see, Um, but we'll look for his explanation of why, and and, uh, people should always, with these things, with people involved in politics, Keep in mind their motivation for what they say, because uh, yes, but he's he's, way, a, he's, he's very much a driven by data kind of individual. So he won't be just saying it and and saying you know that's my opinion. He'll be saying it and backing it up with with all manner of different figures and facts and all the rest of it. But that relies on his interpretation of the data being correct. Well, that's what all data is interpreted, isn't it? I mean, that's the problem we've got. I mean, yeah. we know from Chris Whitty, Chris Whitty and Patrick Vanners last year said that they deliberately skewed some of it uh, in order to scare people. Uh, well, they will have presented it in a way that uh, the right people. But, but it's interpreting it, though, isn't it? Surely it's it the is same. interpreting it. Yeah, I mean, this is my world. I'm used to this, and I'm used to questioning things, and I'm used to hearing things on the radio, and particularly on the television, where people put things forward, and I, and I think, well, that's a crock of you yes. know what. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, so it's yeah, I, I'm cold blooded about this mm. because. I've been doing it for so long. It's just what happens. Yes. And the risk of doing that, of course, is that if you do start spinning things, for want of a better word, people st- start to go, eh, I'm not really sure I believe that. And then they start yeah. to, to not believe any of it. And then they start they to go, their... we don't really want to hear any anymore. That's part of the problem with uh, over-interpreting data yeah. or putting... Um, putting uh, over overly negative slants on things or indeed overly positive slants mm. on things because we've been told how, so how fantastic and amazing the vaccines are and they are good they are they are excellent pieces of work 
they're, they're great inventions, but they, they, they can't make, you know, they can't raise people from the dead. And you could almost no. be forgiven for thinking that they're capable of something like that, given the positive spin that's been put on them. Yes. You know, they're good, they're great, people should have them, but they have their limitations, like everything else. Yes, but again, it's a mixed message, isn't it? Because on the one hand, they're yeah. telling us how great they are, and then on the other hand, they're saying today, uh, well, just because you've been vaccinated doesn't mean you won't be told to self-isolate. To which that, most people exactly will say, point. well, hang on a minute, well, either surely they work or they don't work exactly my point yeah. um they, they should have from the start been much more nuanced much more um much more careful with how they they uh, presented this but they weren't no and the trouble again when you see things like the spanish situation where you can go to spain uh you don't need even a, a negative test anymore you can go there without a negative test without having been vaccinated without any proof of anything um but when you come back you have to go into uh, isolation for two weeks yeah um, and that again uh, is, is a political situation rather than a health a political situation. Decision. They've looked at data and decided that, uh, for example, Spain is in a worse situation than Portugal next mm. door, and come up with that. I suspect this will change in the, in the next week or two, but we'll see. Yeah, no, I think so too. And what do you make of the situation with GPs? Because we spoke to a, a, a GP from the BMA today uh, about this ongoing sort of problem of people getting in to see their GPs, and he said, "Well, one of the issues yeah. is." that we have to keep social distancing. Um, and that means we can't get as many people into a waiting room because, you know, obviously in the old days, we used to have people charging into waiting rooms and just really overcrowding them. But I said to him, yeah, but I mean, they were all sick. They still had diseases that they could communicate to one another, but that wasn't a problem then. Why is it a problem now? Because an awful lot of the people who will be coming in to see you uh, may have all sorts of things wrong with them, but you're not seeing them. And those things that are wrong with them could actually end up killing them. Yeah, well, then that requires the Department for Health to uh, to take a view on that and, and adjust the rules accordingly. What I will say is that the BMA are, are given by news organisations a, uh, a, a sort of status almost of uh, a learned society. Or, not or by me, college. they're not. They're, <laughs> no, not I know I know exactly what they are. They're, they're a trade union, <laughs> they're, Simon. They're a doctor's trade union. Yeah. It says so on the website. In that, they do a very important function. There's no reason why doctors shouldn't have... Uh, have some sort of representation, but uh, they're given the status of, like I say, a yes. royal college. No, listen, no, like I, 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 totally, I totally agree with you, and I can't. It always drives me insane uh, when people quote them as if they are this kind of, you know, voice, the oracle, of, yeah. voice of reason, which which they're very far from. But one of the things that he said to me, which slightly worried me, was that he said, if Boris Johnson lifts the restrictions on social distancing on June the twenty-first, I said, will you then do the same? And he said, well, it depends on the evidence. Now. You know, you can't provide me with evidence that social distancing has stopped the spread of the disease because there's no way to do that. So how can you have evidence of something that you can't prove? Well, they are a trade union and they will they will spin that as, uh, as well as best they can in mm. order to uh, exert leverage on the government. That's their job. I mean, let's be, sure. let's be frank about it. That's their job. Yes, but, but um, it's worse than that, though, because when they yeah. say what they say, they say it's to protect the patients, right? Well, you're hardly protecting mm -hmm. them if you're not seeing them, are you? Absolutely. Um, I keep going on, I keep telling people, four years ago, I was diagnosed with a, a life-threatening disease. It was life-threatening. And that happened only because the GP, who'd never met me before, said, looked across the desk and said, you don't look very well yeah. to me. Yeah. And she was right, I wasn't. Right. Um, and, and that would never have happened down a, a video link no, like exactly. this. Exactly. And that's the point. But it worries me that they want to seemingly keep the status quo of not seeing people, almost as though, you know, the problem with being a doctor is that the patients are a bit of an inconvenience. 
well i mean uh, <laughs> quite yeah. possibly but uh um but then they need to be able to to uh to account for that yes um that's their job but that's the thing isn't it simon um the end result that we all want is to have normality you know brought back in but as long as the government are being over cautious which i still think they are yeah. then it's never going to happen no, I mean, take my profession, university lecturing. Yeah. So, so we, we want to go back to the classroom, to the lecture theatre, because I can assure you it's a darn sight easier to stand mm. in front of, you know, what's matter, 10, 100, 200 students yes. and talk to them than it is to do it down a video link. I think people do need to understand that while it's quite nice to be at home, uh, your life as it was can often be an awful lot easier. Yes, and it's created this kind of, bizarre sort of society where people have forgotten how to be with each other and forgotten what it's like when you sit down with somebody in a uh, in a in a restaurant or in a pub or you know in their house people have yeah. genuinely become anxious about it yeah i think we're going to have problems well when, when we finally do throw everything off mm. uh masks social distancing whatever uh, I, I do think some people are going to find that very difficult indeed. Mm, interesting. Dr. Simon Clark, thank you very much indeed. Associate Professor in Cellular Microbiology at Reading University. I mean, if you're going back to work, I'd love to hear the stories of what you're being told because we're being told, uh, obviously, by the government that if uh, you come into contact with somebody, uh, i.e. somebody pings you because you've got the app, uh, that you were in a close contact with somebody who's now got COVID, um, you still have to go into quarantine, even if you've had two of the vaccinations that seems bonkers to me doesn't it talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at talk radio during the show to have your say mid-morning with mike graham talk radio